This time, I was more than willing to jump on the walls right away upon arrival. I've been dreaming about the granite of Yosemite for months and couldn't wait to experience it again. Tim and I got on the Royal Arches, a 1,500-foot moderate route that climbs left of some giant arch formations on low-angle terrain, with a great view of Half Dome to the east. At one point, we even got passed by three soloists. No ropes, just smiling. One of them was even barefoot, with a thousand feet of air below him. By the time we reached the top, we were relatively fatigued. We'd made the marathon drive, during which we drank little water and ate nothing but junk food, and then we hopped right on the wall. At this point, we had to make a series of rappels, heading down the descent slab, and then into a chimney system to finish things off. By the time we reached the chimney, it was dark. I was feeling nature's call and I really had to poop. I wanted to get off the damn wall. I got into a hurry. I saw a fixed rope leading to the next rappel and decided to hop on that instead of rigging our own rope. I rappelled down the rope, looking for the next bolted anchor. And then, all of a sudden, snap. The end of the rope went through my rappelling device. Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. This is Luke Mihal, and this is episode seven of season three. We're doing a little throwback to American Climber. American Climber is was the subject of the first season of our podcast, and looking back now, we actually started the podcast just before the pandemic. I know a lot of people started podcasts, a lot of artists, musicians, etc., everyone basically but we actually started ours just before it and kind of ran into some difficulties when COVID happened because we were recording in a radio studio here in Durango up at the college KDUR but long story short the reason I wanted to repost this is American Climber is probably the piece of writing that I've had the most feedback from not all good feedback but so many people have told me it's helped with their life it's helped with um, some depression they've dealt with or just Getting, getting through a part of life that's difficult. So I want to go back and share this now. We've got over 50 episodes now in our archives. Um, season one consists of American Climber and a few interviews. And then season two was based off the desert. And the original vision of this podcast has changed a little bit. It was kind of starting off to be a book on tape kind of thing. And it's evolved into more interviews and conversations. Um, I know some people like the storytelling better than the conversations. Some people might prefer the conversations. It's going to continue to be a hybrid of um, this sort of podcast. We want to do something unique. That's what the, the zine is all about, is not necessarily following a format that anyone else has done, but trying to do our own thing and trying to make it unique. But I hope you all enjoy this. This is from an early chapter of American Climber. As you know, the best way to support us is to get something through our online store or um, support through our Patreon. You can find both those links in your show notes and you can find links in our show notes to also support our sponsors. Um, And hope you all enjoy this story. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, 
everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners. And really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. This episode is sponsored by Kilter. Looking for a fun way to train at home or at the gym? Check out the Kilter board. Kilter board has innovative light up holds, progressive app, and animated functions with climbs for all abilities. It also has two layouts to choose from with large online communities for each. There are over 50,000 problems in the original Kilter board layout, and the newer home board layout comes with over 4,300 problems. You can set, tick climbs, make shareable playlists, watch send videos, and even add your own. Kilter has multiple wall sizes and package options available, so we can help get you a Kilter board in almost any space. Check out Kilter at settercloset.com and look for more information in our show notes. This episode is also sponsored by Osprey Packs. Osprey and the climbing zine share the same backyard. Located just down the road from Durango and Cortez, Osprey makes innovative, high-performance gear that reflects a love of adventure and devotion to the outdoors. High-quality packs for any adventure and season. We are proud to share a home in the Four Corners region of Southwest Colorado and the infinite outdoor opportunities that exist here. For more information, check out osprey.com. The next day, there were some climbers, obviously Creek veterans, who were establishing a new route. I didn't even really notice what was going on until they reached the top of a crack and there were no anchors. So they hauled up a power drill and swiftly drilled two holes and then hammered expansion bolts into the wall. Most of the climbs I'd done had the same anchors, but this was the first time I'd witnessed a new route go up. Whoever said there's nothing new under the sun was not a climber. For the rest of my life, I know there will always be new routes. You just have to know where to look. In the late 1990s, there was more low-hanging fruit out in the Colorado Plateau than there is now, but the fruit is still ripe for the picking. Flash forward a couple years, and we were just getting the taste for our desert fix. I'd figured out the techniques, the basics, and spent plenty of time paying my dues, jamming every size of crack I could find. The adrenaline endorphins that desert climbing creates is addicting, so much that we find ourselves returning as often as possible, striking when the iron was hot and the nights were cool. Tim was the rope gun, the energy I attached my climbing hopes and dreams to. He was a force to be reckoned with, and he was always the secret weapon we used as we climbed harder and harder. Around this time, Tim became two-tent Timmy. When I moved into a tent in Gunnison, Tim moved into a tent in Crested Butte, the epic mountain town 30 miles north of Gunny, where he was working at the time. Some friends went to visit him at his new home, a piece of real estate on National Forest land he staked out by setting his tent up. What he did that everyone thought was so memorable was he put a tent inside another tent. The large outer tent was where he kept his cooking supplies and other gear, and the inside tent was where he slept. Once the words Two Tent Timmy were uttered, it was a nickname for life. 
This was perfect because there was another Tim. We worked together and he was on the mountain rescue team and he was interested in climbing. We struck a deal. I would join the rescue team and learn from him and his life-saving compadres. And we would teach him some things about climbing. So one day, two tent, Tim, the new Tim, and I were at Supercrack Buttress in Indian Creek talking about what we're going to do the next day. A climber was eavesdropping, listening to the process. He said, wisely, you guys should check out the North Six Shooter. We inquired. Obviously, we knew the formation. It was the most striking tower in all of Indian Creek. A slim, crimson pistol that stood alone, shot 400 feet in the air, and hovered there like a beacon. We probably asked some questions about the Crocs and the gear, but what I remember most is his convincing statement. It doesn't get any better than the North Six Shooter. That night at camp, we looked through the guidebook, scribbled out a topo map of the pitches, and tried to hide our nervousness. Two Tent wasn't nervous, though. He lived for this stuff. It was like at any time, he was ready to face his fears and try his hardest on the rock. I was usually in the opposite realm, unready to face my fear, and hopeful that something would come up so we could give up and get stoned, go back to the comfort zone. Secretly, though, deep inside, I wanted to face my fear with confidence like Two Tent did. I wanted to live freely. We drove Tim's truck to the mighty North Six Shooter. A few clouds hovered off in the distance, a storm brewing for sure. One of us mentioned canceling the mission for cragging at the Supercrack Buttress again. But Two Tent's persistence and vision carried us through to the drive to park the truck, and then we began hiking up. We totally blew the approach, and it took us two hours instead of one, often hiking on ball bearings. The point on a telescope where the service is unsteady, unpredictable, and you feel like you're going to tumble down to certain injury if you slip. Sweaty, already tired, confused, and disoriented, I looked up at the tower. There are only two main routes, and they are so obvious that a grandma with cataracts could point them out. Our intended line, the lightning bolt cracks, shot up and zigged and zagged back and forth, so divine and perfectly shaped for human fingers, hands, and feet. It was crazy to think that it had only been first climbed just after we were born. Since the gear of the camming devices necessary to protect the cracks like these was only invented in 1978, nearly every climb in the desert was done first in our lifetimes. The other line, Liquid Sky, was a brutal overhanging squeeze chimney, even more obvious than the lightning bolt cracks. I'd read about the climb in a magazine. It had such a daunting reputation for every thousand people that looked at it, only one probably tried it. The major rumor was that you could become stuck in it. If you fell, you would fall so deeply into it that you could die and they would never be able to retrieve your body. Rumors are rumors, though. But I've yet to climb the thing, so I can't confirm or deny. Two Tent racked up with our meager selection of gear, though growing by the day. That's something about climbing. Your gear, especially if you're a dirtbag, is the most expensive of your possessions. When you embark on a climb, you pull up all your gear and it becomes one communal thing. Two Tent went up with everything and navigated his way through the first crack system, eventually pulling through an overhanging off-width squeeze. Then he slowed down. Two Tent was rarely slowed down, and Tim and I noticed the rope coming to a halt. We looked at each other and whispered what we were thinking. I was belaying and kept my focus on being ready for Two Tent to fall. Tim had his eyes on the weather. The clouds were building and building, and he mentioned that a thunderstorm was inevitable. It was, and just as Tim suggested it, thunder started. Exposure is a big concept in climbing. 
Sometimes exposure means 2,000 feet of air beneath your climbing shoes. At this particular moment, we were exposed to lightning. The instinct is to get the hell out of there, but I was tethered to two tent, holding the rope for his belay, and he was facing a thin, blank section, trying to wiggle in gear, but nothing fit. We yelled back and forth. He decided to down climb to a chalk stone, wedged in the crack that he just passed. The chalk stone had some webbing around it, and he clipped a carabiner and lowered down to our perch. Thunder clapped all around, and finally, it was time to book it. We scurried off the hill, slipping and sliding, but making it swiftly back to the truck, while thunder and lightning erupted all around us. Just when we got back to the truck, it really let loose. The heavens were purple, with a hundred flashes of lightning going off at a time, thunder erupting so often you couldn't tell what lightning was connected with what thunder. As we drove away, we couldn't have been happier to be in the truck, and the majestic desert soon was in the rearview mirror as we headed back to Gunnison. As winter approached in Gunnison, we had a burning desire to see a little bit more of all the rocks before they were covered in snow. So we headed back to Yosemite just before Thanksgiving Day. This time, there were four of us in that purple truck. We were joined by Jared and Dane. Dane was the newest member of our crew. He was equally as innocent and as optimistic as we were. He loved climbing and was intoxicated by it, just as we were. It was a colossal mistake to have so many people in such a small truck. It was also indicative of the lengths we would go to experience the climbing life. This was just a two-seater, so at least two people would have to be uncomfortable at all times. For 20 hours, we rotated in this manner, three in the front with someone sitting in the middle, or two in the back and two in the front. It was uncomfortable and unsafe, but we arrived in Yosemite unscathed. This time, I was more than willing to jump on the walls right away upon our arrival. I've been dreaming about the granite of Yosemite for months and couldn't wait to experience it again. Tim and I got on the Royal Arches, a 1,500-foot moderate route that climbs to the left of some giant arch formations on low-angle terrain. It also has a great view of Half Dome, to the east. At one point, we got passed by three soloists, climbing without ropes, smiling. One of them was even barefoot, with a thousand feet of air below him. By the time we reached the top, we were relatively fatigued. We'd made that marathon drive, during which we drank little water and ate nothing but junk food. And then we hopped right on the wall. At this point, we had to make a series of rappels, heading down the descent slab and then into a chimney system to finish things off. By the time we reached the chimney, it was dark. I was feeling nature's call, and I really had to poop. I wanted to get off the damn wall, and I got in a hurry. I saw a fixed rope leading to the next rappel and decided to hop on that instead of rigging our own rope. I rappelled down the rope, looking for the next bolted anchor. And then, all of a sudden, snap, the end of the rope went through my rappelling device. Since I was in a chimney, I barely moved an inch. I was shocked but there was no time to contemplate what had just happened. My instincts told me to reach up and get back on that rope. I did, and instinctively climbed back up the rope using a prussic. If I weren't in that chimney, I would have fallen 300-some feet down the wall with probable death, and if I wouldn't have died, it would have been even worse than death. Another close call avoided. We rigged our own ropes up for the rappel and then made it safely back to the ground. Once on the ground, we tried to pull the ropes, and they became stuck. It was pitch dark. We had two options, 
climb up the ropes using a prussic, or just leave the ropes until the morning and then deal with them then. We chose the latter, and then went back to find our shoes and jackets at the base where we started. But we couldn't find the base. Frustrated, and draped in nothing but ropes and climbing gear, still wearing our climbing shoes, we set out to find Jared and Dane. We caught a bus to the Curry Village, where we thought we were supposed to meet. No sign of them. They had the purple truck, which had all of our sleeping gear in it. So we just sat by a fire in the Curry Village, warming up and trying to figure out what to do. We didn't have cell phones, so we simply just had to wait to see if they would come by. There was an Alcoholics Anonymous conference that weekend, and there was bustling traffic throughout the building. Many of them noticed our climbing gear and stopped to ask us questions as we pathetically sat there waiting for our friends. Now this was a dirtbag moment. We started to think about what might happen if we didn't meet up with Dane and Jared. We need to figure out where we would sleep. We only had a couple dollars in our pockets, which we spent on tea to warm ourselves up. We'd have to find a place to sleep. We contemplated crawling under some tables in the coffee shop area and hiding there when they closed down for the night. Things were getting desperate. A couple hours passed, and there was no sign of our friends. Finally, we decided to catch the last bus to the Wani Hotel, which has the finest accommodations in Yosemite. We would try to sleep on couches in the lobby. Still clothed in our climbing gear, we found our way to the Awani Hotel. We got off the bus and walked through the cold night into the Awani. I have no idea how we even made it past the door, looking like the dirtbags that we were, but we were soon out of the cold and into a classy hotel. It was decided that Tim would sleep on the first floor and I would go to the second. I headed up the stairs and planted myself on a couch in the lobby. I fell into a restless sleep, wearing climbing shoes and using a rope for my pillow. Poetic yet far from comfortable. I woke up in the morning and quickly found my way out of the hotel. Tim was waiting for me near the entrance. He had been discovered in the early morning and was asked to leave. So we went to the base of Royal Arches and retrieved our shoes. I changed shoes and thanked him. We laughed about our night, but I didn't talk about my near-death miss on the rappel. We didn't bring it up for years. I tell the story often now, especially to younger climbers. Though I don't know if telling them really saves anyone from danger, but it reminds me how delicate life is, and how after that day, every day was a bonus. Because, in all reality, I should have paid the price for my mistake, and that price should have been death. Eventually, we found Dane and Jared. They were waiting at the Yosemite Village, and we were at the Curry Village. A simple confusion that led to our adventurous bivouac at the Five Star Hotel. We still had to retrieve our ropes, which were still stuck on the last rappel. I climbed back up the ropes with a prussic. Looking around that pleasantly warm and bluebird late November day, I thought again about my mistake. Yet I had no plans to abandon climbing. The rational decision might have been to give it all up. All these near-death experiences for what? A rush? What was I discovering by existing in the vertical? Questions unanswered then, perhaps unanswered forever. More question marks in the rabbit hole that is climbing philosophy. The knot of the ropes was stuck in the crack. I removed the knot and then rappelled back to the ground. We pulled the ropes and then had the inevitable conversation you have when any adventure is done. What will we climb next? As we thought about that, I was wrought with guilt on the inside for my mistake. I'd now had two near-death experiences in that year alone. I thought of my parents and how they would have dealt with my death. I would be another young climber dead in Yosemite. Internally, I could not move on from that, and I think about that day still all the time. Luck was on my side. 
Physically, we moved on. Since no one was in Yosemite, we went over to El Capitan and did a couple pitches at the base. We climbed three pitches up on the Salate wall, one of the trade routes on El Cap. There were frogs in the cracks, and they seemed inviting, like, hey, come see what's up here. Touching the captain felt magical. We repelled, safely, with thousands of feet of granite above us, promising future adventures, if we could only stay alive. That was episode seven of season three, a little throwback to American Climber, my 2016 memoir, a book I'm really proud of. And as one reviewer put it online, the early seasons of this podcast are basically like free books on tape. Maybe one day we'll get them uploaded to the book on tape, audio formats like Audible and stuff like that. But for now, we've just left it here for free for everyone to listen to um, on the podcast. And from Wendy... Durango, Colorado. I'm Luke Mihal, signing off. Peace.